Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. It's the Business of Agriculture and we have a great show for you today. This one is one that I'm more excited about than usual, and I'm usually pretty darn excited. Got a great guest. His name is Daryl Bricker. He's a PhD, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's out of Toronto, but that doesn't matter to you. What matters to you is that he wrote a book, and it's a dandy, called Empty Planet. I started quoting certain aspects of Empty Planet about uh, uh, two months ago. It came out February 5th, and I read an article about the book. I said, I've got to, I've got to learn more. Empty Planet, the shock of global population decline. And you're saying, dear listener, you're saying, wait a minute, population decline? I'm in the business of agriculture. We've been told feed the nine, feed the world, feed the nine, feed the world since, since we were born. And now you're saying the population is going to decline? I am saying that. I've been saying it for five years to my agricultural audiences at speaking engagements, and now I have an author who's going to share his findings and what he wrote about in the book Empty Planet. Daryl Bricker, welcome to the Business of Ag podcast. Thanks for having me on, Damien. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I just gave the background there. Uh, I say feed the world, which is a statement that the business of agriculture loves to – it's their mantra. have been saying it forever. and it works, but you agree with me, and you've done a great, more, great deal more research than I have, and you say that we're gonna actually have a population decline. So before we get into that, what do I need to know about you and the research you did? Because why are you qualified to write a book about population decline? You're a PhD, you work for a public affairs company. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's all numbers in the end, and so uh, being very comfortable with numbers, it, it, it's, a, it's something that works for me. But really where I came to this from is a similar place I think you did, uh, Damien, which is um, uh, hearing all of this mantra about the size of the global population. And actually the number that uh, the UN tells us is by, the, by 2100, it's going to be 11.2 billion people. And when you start to really look at how they came up with that number, but also look at what demographers are saying about that number, it's really not uh, uh, viable that we're actually going to get to that level. And, and one of the things that really excites me whenever I see anything in science, and this is really a question of science, that's counterintuitive. Uh, you know, we, ha we have what we call vertical knowledge. This idea, this thing that everybody knows, right? You know, it's vertically consistent. All the politicians know it. All the media knows it. All your agricultural friends know it. Everybody, you know, at street level knows it, and it's wrong. And that's what this book is really about: is taking that piece of scientific information that everybody assumes is an absolute fact and deconstructing it based on a combination of just looking at good demographics and how the modeling is done, but also traveling around the world and talking to people who are living in these circumstances so we can understand why it is that they're not having the number of kids uh, that the UN claims we're going to have. The word, the term you just gave to when everybody knows something that absolutely is not right, that's called vertical what? I call it vertical knowledge. It's that okay. thing that everybody knows. It's kind of comes up from the ground and it's consistent everywhere. Uh, and, and there are some things that happen in, I guess, public opinion, which is uh, part of what we're talking here, but, you know, elite opinion in this instance, uh, that everybody just absolutely knows, but nobody actually ever checks it. Yeah, so that's, that's dead on. And that's why I'm not afraid to be contrarian. You aren't either. So, uh, and, and you, it, 
tell me about being contrarian because we've heard this forever. You're a touch older than me. I'll be 50 years old here this summer. You're a little older than me, but we've been hearing this forever. There's a, and the reason I point out to my ag crowds, when I was a little boy, I played with matchbox cars. I loved matchbox cars. And I remember saying, when I'm old, I'm going to be rich and I'm going to have a Mustang, uh, a 71 Mustang fastback. Uh, and I'm going to have a Dodge charger and I'm gonna have an El Camino. And then people say, in 40 years, we're not even going to have gasoline. We heard consistently as kids that we were going to run out of gasoline. We heard this consistently. We heard in the 80s that Japan was going to rule the world. They economically were going to, they'd already taken over the United States. You know, remember the old bumper stickers in the 80s? Unemployment made in Japan never happened. I say that this population thing is the next big bunch of nonsense that we're going to say, why the hell did we ever think that? Your view. Well, it's kind of like the Y2K of population statistics, right? Everybody knows that all this is going to happen, you know, when the, when the clock ticks over into uh, 2000, uh, you know, the first day of 2000, uh, and, and everything's going to fall apart, planes are going to be falling out of the sky and all sorts of other things. And everybody knows it, and it never happened. Uh-huh. On the population front, it's pretty much the same. These are these things that everybody knows. You know, the population is out of control in India and China. They're having so many babies, we're never going to be able to feed them. And the interesting thing, Damien, is that this is not a new thing. This goes all the way back to Robert Malthus, an English uh, economist and agronomist and political economist back in the 1700s, started this whole discussion about the the Earth's inability to feed an ever-expanding population. So it goes back that far. And in fact, we have a chapter in the book called the Neo-Malthusians or Malthus and Sons. Uh, where we we go through and we look at everybody, you know, from Paul, Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb, because, by the way, if you believe what, what Ehrlich said, we should all be fighting in the streets now for decreasing uh, number of resources to, in order to just be able to feed ourselves. It's, you know, soil and green as people, you know, that kind of a, that kind of a situation. It never happened. And it was wrong back then. And it's wrong today. You're beating me to my own outline. I sent you this. Oh, I, I, I wanted to get to the part about soil and green because I can't think there's two movies and both of them star Charlton Heston that had an everlasting impact on me as a kid. Cause I actually liked science fiction, not not scary fiction. I don't like the chopper slicers, but even as a kid, I liked Planet of the Apes and Soylent Green. We're going to get there in a minute. But back to the English economist and agronomist, which there aren't too many of those. I'm, I'm close. I was going to be an agronomist and instead I became an ag economist. <laughs> Doom and gloom. This is the 1700s. And there's Britain, the most affluent country on the planet. That's about the time when the sun never set on the British Empire. And they've got a guy. In the 1700s, which were, there were what, maybe half a billion people on Earth at this time? No, it was uh, probably about a billion then. About a billion, about a billion then. And he says, oh, my God, we'll never feed everybody. It's just, it's just catastrophe. It's doom and gloom. So is it just that doom and gloom sells, or why did it work even then? Well, you know, in behavioral science, one of the things that we do is we tend to overestimate the downside and underestimate the upside. I mean, so it's not, a, it's, 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 it's part of human nature. It's the way our brains are, brains are wired. But uh, these, uh, you know, doom and gloom scenarios do tend to sell. I mean, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, there's always at least one book there that, uh, that says that. And, you know, there's whole groups of the, uh, you know, interest groups and other people who are, you know, formed around this idea of saving us from ourselves uh, that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's been in, in my research, at least going back to the time of Malthus and probably even back to the time of, you know, the, the splitting of fishes and loaves. Okay. So I tell my agricultural audiences that we've been falling in love with feed the world 
And I just, in fact, I just released a video about a month ago because I finally got me on stage explaining why that's ridiculous, why we will not need to worry about feed the world because we, agriculture always catches up. Food production generally always catches up. Also, we're not going to have 9, 10, 11 billion people. There's a company called Elanco, the CEO of that company. They're an animal health company. Loved that whole phrase so much. He coined the phrase and started putting it all over his marketing, feed the nine. United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization says we're going to have 11. You don't even think we're going to get to 11. Do you even think we're going to get to 9 billion people? Somewhere between 8 and 9, possibly, uh, would be, the, would be the, the most logical estimate. So probably somewhere between 8 and 9. Peak out mid-century and then start to decline after that. But, Damien, the interesting thing about that is that we assume that that population is just, we're just going to lop a piece off of it. And it's the population going forward is going to look like the population today. And it's not. What we're going to see is a, a much more urbanized population and a much older population and a much more female population at that time. Okay. Uh, much more urbanized. That's obviously already happening. Many of, many of my listeners are agricultural people in places like Canada and North America, you know, United States and Canada. And they're in places like rural Alberta and they're out in Kansas. And they already see that even those towns have half the number of people. You, you know, you can drive into a town in rural Canada or rural uh, America and it's not that we're not still producing crops. We just don't need as many people to do so. That's probably going to continue in our industry. So these people move to town for economic opportunity. That's been happening since the industrial revolution. What makes it happen even more? Because it's happening at a much faster pace. So uh, if uh, you go back to 1960 and you look at the world's population and what percentage lived in, a, in an urban environment, it was about a third. Today, it's more than half. It's about 54%. The UN's just upped its estimate uh, for 2050 up to 68%. 68% of the globe, 68% of the globe's population will be urbanized. And when's that going to happen by? 2050. Okay, so and, that's only 30 years from now. Right. And, and the thing is, you, you take a look at it, the numbers have absolutely reversed. So it was two-thirds of the world's population living in rural areas, rural communities, back in 1960. And in the future, it's going to be two-thirds living in cities. So moving the population moving to the city has huge implications, yes, in terms of creating all sorts of new pressures for farming communities, rural communities, smaller communities, which, by the way, is not a big topic of conversation these days. Uh, and it is going to be a growing conversation going forward because the sustainability of those communities is really going to come into question. Well, you know, we here in the United States, we have towns like Flint, which which uh, lost a bunch of population, then had the lead in the water pipes and all that. And really, that's a decaying infrastructure and a loss of population. You know, Detroit, it wasn't that long ago that Detroit, there was uh, stuff you saw in the news that they were just bulldozing neighborhoods. That's not because of some you know, war. I think it's just because the economic viability of being there. This might happen in some of these smaller towns. I read an article that somewhere, I believe it was in the Dakotas, was paying families, if you want to just get out of California because you can't afford to live there, come to South Dakota and we will give you a certain amount of money to do so. But if there's no job once they get there, Daryl, how does that work? Well, it doesn't, and that's the problem. So the, the, these are problems not just in South Dakota. They're problems in Hungary, where they're now paying people to come back 
um, and uh, young people who've left in the Hungarian diaspora all across uh, all across Europe to come back because the population is shrinking. In Japan now, uh, they're actually putting mannequins and bus shelters in rural communities because they want people to feel like there's people around. <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can go online and you can find pictures of it. Yeah, I mean, it's truly incredible. The statistic I read was that right now Japan has a population of 127 million people and in very short order, meaning in the next 20 years, 30 at the most, it's going to be 100 million people. All right. The book is called Empty Planet. You uh, did the research. You uh, have your stance that we're going to start losing population. I have said we won't even get to 9 billion people. You think, yeah, probably right. Somewhere a little over eight. That's reasonable. Why Why does this happen? Why does why do we stop breeding? Well, we're right on the topic. I mean, you raised the, the the most interesting part of this, and really, the big effect is urbanization. So, when you move uh, from the country to the city, uh, the first thing that happens is people start to make an economically rational decision. Lots of kids on the farm, um, great higher mortality rates. So you need to have more kids first of all, infant mortality rate. But the second thing is, you know, it's free, free labor. I mean, they're there to do all the things that you did when you were a kid working on the farm. Uh, when you move to the city, uh, kids actually just become a cost. It's another mouth to feed. So you have fewer mouths to feed. So what ends up happening is uh, people make an economically rational decision. But the other big effect, and this is the one that's the most interesting in the book, I think is the cultural effect, and particularly the cultural effect on women. When women move from the farm to the city, they start to demand what women demand these days, which is a sense of empowerment, access to education, opportunities for careers. They start to meet other women who have taken different lives and established different role models in their lives. And they start to decide, maybe I want to have an education, which means I get married 10 years later. I want to start my family later because I want to have a career. I want to have some assets. I want to have some independence. And the minute that you start uh, increasing the time that a woman goes from her teenage years to her adult years before she has kids or gets into a permanent relationship, you reduce the number of kids that they have. So the ideal family size, and we've asked this on a survey, what's the ideal number of kids to have in your family today? And you ask women worldwide in 25 countries, the number's two. Which is just a replacement rate. Just, just replacement rate. Actually, just a little below replacement rate. Yeah, replacement rate needs to be like 2.1 or 2.2 because of some mortality. Is that, that the right yeah, answer? Mortality and also to make up for those who can't or won't, right? So, uh, yeah, 2.1 in, in, in most countries. In the United States, the number today is about 1.8. Uh, in fact, if you just look at the millennial generation, the people who are having kids today, it's down to one in the United States. So you mean, you mean what's what, not, not what we need for replacement, but what's actually happening? What's actually happening. So the, the interesting thing is that the, is the collapse is happening faster than anyone is really predicting. So there's a paper that just came out from The Lancet, uh, in The Lancet magazine, that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It came out in, in November of last year of uh, you know, several hundred demographers who've gone back and re-estimated fertility rates for all of the countries of the world. And almost all of the countries that they've estimated are lower than what the UN has today. So, for example, India, the two largest countries in the world today are China and India. Right. China's birth rate is 1.5. The Lancet says it's probably lower than that, 1.4. Uh, the uh, UN has uh, India at 2.3. The Lancet has it at 2.1. If you screw up on those two countries, 36% of the world's population lives in those two places. And if you, don't, if you have those two places wrong, 
it's probably going to be reduced even more rapidly than what we're suggesting. Yeah. And, and that's my thought. And that's where I explained to my agricultural audience. I said, we've been going on, as you called it, vertical knowledge for so long that we don't even question the numbers and, and they should be questioned. You're talking about uh, China doesn't give us straight information. They reversed their one child policy three years ago. And the result has been no change, meaning three years ago and previous to that, you could not have more than one baby because they were convinced that by God, we're going to end up just, we're going to all just starve because we have too many people. Then it became apparent that's not going to happen. So they reversed the one child policy and the amazing thing happened. The couples still don't have more than one baby because they'd rather have, they'd rather have a car. They'd rather have meat. You know, they'd rather have uh, pork chops and maybe uh, air conditioning and they don't want to have seven children anymore. I don't see that changing. Well, they're caught in what's called, uh, demographers call the low fertility trap. And the low fertility trap is, is when a country's culture adopts to smaller families. So the expectation of families is that they will be smaller, they'll be one and two, instead of five and six and seven. And when women aren't producing children because they have to satisfy their God, or because they have to satisfy their husband, or they have to satisfy their state, and they have a choice on their own how many kids they want to have, they have fewer. So in China, what's happening is women are getting married at a much older rate than their, particularly their grandmothers did. And when they are getting married, they're choosing to have fewer kids. Mm-hmm. Also in China, one more thing to sort of throw out there that uh, is, a, is a, a really disconcerting about China is there's 60 million women missing from the Chinese population. Because of the one-child policy, what happened uh, was that they had, once they had access to ultrasound, which started in, in, the, uh, in the early 1970s, they started to abort. Abort, abort girls because they wanted a family name to go on. And there's even terrible, tragic stories about infanticide, meaning you, you, these, these couples were going to only have one child. That's all they could by law only have one child. If they gave birth to a little girl, they would kill the baby, which is... Same uh, thing in India, by the way. So the two most populous countries in the world, when you look at the male-female gender ratios in terms of births. So just so your listeners know, uh, if you have to ever bet on whether or not your friend's going to have a girl baby or a boy baby, always bet boy. It's a 5% chance more likelihood that they'll have a boy than a girl. That's just what nature produces. In the countries like China today, it's like 120 to 100. Is that true? That it's, it's, it's 115 it's, to 100. It's, it's a 55-45 on, on boy It's 105, 105 to 100. Okay, so it's not it's not quite a full. So then there's a bigger thing in those ch- countries, but that's not because of na- nature; it's because of abortion and infanticide. Right, and and remember, these are the only people who can create new people. Yeah. So the girls. Now you then that goes a little bit uh, counter to it. You said that the future has more women in the urbanized areas. Is that because uh, we in these other countries they stop uh, aborting them? No, it's because boys do all the things that they shouldn't do to live longer. <laughs> and get killed. Yeah, so we, we die seven years sooner. We also go to war, and then we also kill ourselves with uh, all sorts of other ways. Three times more likely to commit suicide, more likely to die as a result of accident, more likely to die as a result of violence. Almost every cause, with the exception of breast cancer, uh, is more likely to kill uh, a man than a woman. So the, 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 the wrong assumption that we have in our brains about how this works, Damien, again, vertical knowledge, is that what happens is the average man lives to the age of 75 and the average woman lives to the age of 80, say, for example, in the United States. That's not true. There's always more boys born than, uh, than girls in the United States, but by the age of 30, 
difference is eliminated. And then every year after that, there's more girls than boys. So it'll be more of a, a female population because there's more older women mm-hmm. after the age of 30 than there is under the age of 30. And what that does is it creates a very interesting challenge for the people in the agriculture industry because they're going to have to start selling to people, to women, not just as consumers for their families, but as individuals buying for themselves. So the average, uh, so in, in the United States right now, uh, the, for people a hundred years of age or older, and by the way, if you're having kids today, the likelihood is that they're going to live to the age of a hundred. There's five women for every man over a hundred years of age or older. Yeah. You, you know, that's the old story that if you can, if you can go to Florida as an 80 year old man and still have your, your Buick and your driver's license, you've got your pick, you've got your pick of the ladies because well, uh, I was going to say, yeah, if you if you can make it to a hundred, you're a hottie. <laughs> you're a guy. All right. You alluded to it earlier. And by the way, dear listeners, I'm talking to Daryl Bricker. He's a smart guy. He's a PhD. He wrote empty planet in conjunction with a guy named John Ibbotson, empty planet, the shock of global population decline. And uh, we're talking about what this means for agriculture, because after all, this is the business of agriculture podcast. And we're looking at, okay, I'm a smart person. I'm working in the business of agriculture. What's all this less, less population mean? Well, I've already told you it means let's get out of this whole feed the world thing because it always played to our strength. We love producing commodities. Each year we're going to produce more corn and more canola than we did last year. And by golly, we're going to go to town and tell everybody how many bushels we got. That's neat. And then that means we found a barge to put it on and we shipped it somewhere overseas and said, ah, we got to keep feeding the world. Yeah, keep feeding the world. And it works because then agriculture, like all industries, doesn't really like to change that much. So this way we don't have to really change, but we have to change our thinking because if we go from 7.6 billion people today on earth to about 7 billion or even 6 billion 100 years from now, 200 years from now, we don't have to feed everybody as well. What's this all mean for agriculture? Daryl Bricker, tell me. Well, I think it means that you're going to have to start changing uh, the export markets that you look at. So, for example, uh, if, if we think that uh, uh, the United States has a birth rate issue in terms of uh, the number of kids that are being born, all of the places that you think have huge birth rates likely don't. Uh, the only place that remains that does is Africa. And the interesting thing on the whole issue of famine is there is almost no famine in the world today. All of the famine that's being created is being created as a result of politics, not access to food in the conventional sense. That's that's, that's dead on. I mean, in Venezuela, Venezuela, there are food shortages, but it's not because there's not ample amounts of food nearby. It's because of political uh, turmoil or even worse yet in some of the African countries, some tribals uh, power is based on whether they can keep food from another group of people. Right. And so that's, it's created by politics. Uh, One of the things I would be thinking about in agriculture is uh, still a fair amount of immigration is going to come from places like, you know, uh, India. Increasingly it's going to be coming from places like Africa. What are you making for people who have pallets that are defined by those countries? What are their food needs going to be, particularly in Africa, uh, uh, because they're, they're the only place in the world that really has a young population now and is going to be producing more people going into the future, not at as rapid a rate or as a large amount as is being predicted, but still there's going to be growth there. What are you making for them? Yeah, so in other words, if you go to Africa and see that they eat some sort of root, uh, meaning uh, 
a potato, not rice, or some vegetable that we don't even grow, or some pea or bean or whatever that should be, that's where we should start expanding our uh, research and how we can make more of that? That's what I think, yeah. I mean, it's, it's logical. If, if uh, the, uh, the concept of you know, feeding the world is feeding specific mouths, you have to go to where there's the most mouths. And increasingly, it's going to be in the continent of Africa. Yeah. And then the issue there has always been the economics. Can they actually afford what we have? What about other industries? You know, agriculture is obviously the one that we're talking about here, but other industries are impacted by this also. We're going to just take subcategories within agriculture. We've talked a lot about food. Let's talk about John Deere's. Let's talk about milking equipment. Let's talk about uh, livestock processing plants, et cetera, et cetera. Where's all that end up? Well, if, if the United States is anything like Canada, one of the biggest uh, uh, changes that's happened is the, uh, the reduction in the number of farms and the expansion of the amount of property that are, that's involved in the farms. So increasingly, uh, and when I talk to agriculture audiences, I say, you know, we talk about the family farm. Uh, you know, the emphasis used to be on the family. Now it's becoming increasingly on the farm. It's really, you know, f- farmers are becoming agricultural entrepreneurs. Well, and it's a matter of consolidation. So the numbers yeah. and the commas move, and it's not because of any, this is where a lot of the non-ag people don't get it. You obviously are not one of those people. They think it's some evil plot by Monsanto. Uh, it's just a matter of the numbers. Uh, you know, you can't make it by having uh, one dry cleaners that turns out uh, 50 clean shirts per day in Toronto, just like you can't make it on 40 acres growing uh, soybeans like you once maybe could. So those are the issues of economics and consolidation. So what's, what's that mean moving forward with the less population? Well, I think it's going to mean that we're going to have to get, uh, you know, continue in terms of our efficiency, but our, but our expectation should be that there are going to be fewer people involved in the, in the agriculture industry. Uh, and that um, to the extent that we can um, uh, bring technology into the game, because it's, it's actually getting harder and harder to keep people on the farm. And we were talking about that earlier, younger people who want an education tend to move to the city and they stay, they don't go back. So uh, I think, you know, anything that can make the lives of farmers easier by becoming more efficient operating in larger farms, I think is that there's going to be absolutely an opportunity for that. But the other thing that's going to happen is anything that we're doing to increase the productivity of marginal farmland, I think is going to decline in terms of its necessity. So you're, uh, that, I, I, love, I love that you just said that because I didn't know how deep in the weeds you wanted to get. I, I say to my audiences that if we have less problem with production because production always catches up. We've, we've got 800 billion somewhat hungry people on earth now. And 20 years ago is 1 billion. We've gone up by one and a half billion and gone in total and down by hungry by 200 million. I say that production always catches up through technology and innovation. We can keep making more food per acre. We will not need some of those acres in the North part of, uh, Manitoba that are, you know, rocky and, and filled with, covered with ice, we just won't need them because the acre demand and the return on the acre will not be there. You see the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And they're going to turn into one of the things that's going to help with the problem of global warming, which is marginal farmland is going to return to nature in many places and, uh, and become a car- the carbon sink that it originally was. So, yeah, I think that uh, um, this idea that you have to have volume uh, driving things, I think there's going to be more of an emphasis on quality 
of the quality of the, of the farm products that we're producing, the nutritional level of the farm products that we're producing. Uh, as the population ages, I mean, the average person in the United States today is 40 years old. Um, people who are going to be trying to manage their health as they're going to be trying to live longer are going to be wanting better quality food, more choices, uh, uh, more uh, healthy food. Uh, and uh, I think there's going to be more of a demand for that and less of a demand for bulk. Yeah, you, you know, you, you sound like many of the points I make in my presentations to agriculture because I understand commodity mindset. It's not bad that we do it. We've done it out of, out of instruction. You know, the entire farm policy of the United States of America forever has been cheap food in large quantity because a well-fed uh, populace doesn't revolt. And also you have economic power when you have food uh, in abundance. That's been the policy probably in Canada as well in, as it is in the United States. That policy, whether it's really by decree or by, you know, whether it's implied or whatnot, is going to change because we don't need, we don't need the quantity and we've already got the quantity. So now I say there's going to be a chance to do more value added. Does that happen globally also? Are they paying more for organic kumquats? Well, yeah, they are. And, and the reason is because the people who we consider to be in those uh, more marginal types of economies, uh, that's the place where the middle class is growing the fastest. So places like Asia, for example. So, uh, you know, our whole grocery system is going to have to change to accommodate tastes in those places. And our whole export system is going to have to change. And it's not going to necessarily be based on bulk. Uh, you know, you know, uh, bags of weed or bags of weed. Well, in Canada now, that would be an interesting uh, cash crop. But uh, well, it, it is, it is. I mean, that's a real legitimate thing. It, it, so there's going to be acres devoted to planting marijuana and hemp for fiber and oil that there weren't before that we thought we had to be putting in oats and corn. Yeah, and so you're going to see a decline in that. And you know, as as we go along too. There's obviously going to be not just in terms of, uh, you know, grain farming or whatever, animal husbandry is going to change as well. And uh, so there's going to be some massive impacts on the agriculture industry in all different ways. Uh, but I think that the important thing to keep in mind always through this is that it's ultimately about feeding people and understanding how the human population is transitioning and not necessarily in the way that we're being told it's transitioning is going to be really important for people who want to stay ahead of the curve. All right. We're talking to Daryl Bricker, smart dude, author, co-author of empty planet, the shock of global population decline. I just got my copy today. I read the review. I read several page sample on Amazon. I encourage you to do the same and then buy it. What else do they need to know if they want to get a hold of you, Dr. Bricker. Well, they can find me on Twitter. Just uh, look at my name. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot about Canadian politics, but I do talk an awful lot about uh, about uh, uh, about population change. So I'm always uh, I'm always throwing up a couple of uh, interesting things for people to look at. Any last closing thoughts besides my recommendation of your book, Empty Planet? Well, I think people should also check out your book too. I'm certainly going to check it out. Do business better by me, Damian Mason. Traits, habits, and actions to help you succeed because everybody in the business of agriculture is in business. You've been listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Damian Mason. Dr. Daryl Bricker, thank you very much for being here. My sincere pleasure, Damian. Thank you. Got it. Thank you. Till next time, it's the Business of Ag.